Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Uh, we got a great show for you today. But before we get to that, this is once we've I've done this to you before, Dr. Matt. Uh-huh. Remember the books where you could pick your own ending? Yeah, choose your own adventure. Yes. Of course. So right now you can choose your own adventure. All right. Okay, so one of them is a conversation I had at a party this weekend. Okay. That's one adventure. Party conversation, yep. Or another adventure is dealing with regret and addiction. <laughs> party conversation. Okay, so I go Absolutely. to this party, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a Halloween party. Yeah. Uh, and we walk in there, and people are dressed up. And I knew some of them. A lot of these people were friends that I went to college with. And then, you know, as you get older, you, your friend circle gets bigger. And so I knew the lion's share. <laughs> I actually think it gets smaller. Oh. Only you would say oh, no, yeah, it no. gets bigger because no, you're Casey. Yeah, my friend. Yeah. So it got bigger. So I yeah. knew some of them, and then others I didn't know. Right. And so we walk into this party, and I'm with one of my buddies that I've known for 25 years. He goes by the nickname T-Bone. Oh, oh we've heard about T-Bone yeah. before. And T-Bone T-Bone is... T-Bone and C-Money go into a party. Yeah. It's like a setup for a joke. Yeah, and D-Dog and Drunko. Yeah. Um, but D-Dog and Drunko weren't there. Oh. So it's just me dang. and T-Bone. Okay, you and T-Bone. Me and T-Bone are sitting there, yeah. and this lady comes up, and she goes, hey, welcome to the party. Uh, can I get you guys a drink? And I go, no, I'm good. What kind of party does somebody show up and like, uh, like you have you have staff serving no, at the party? I, I, there was a bar and there was oh, other okay, stuff, okay. and they were like, hey, so it, was, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, party. kind of a big yeah. deal. It was like, and I was like, no, I'm good. Josh and I don't get you invited know. to those kind of parties. And yeah. T Bone goes, yeah, kind of sucks doing that podcast because now you can't do this anymore. <laughs> and you know, I mean, he was kind of joking, being lighthearted, but I go. No, the reason I don't do this anymore is because it ruined my life. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not because I right. do this podcast. This podcast helps me stay rooted, you know, helps me keep yeah. connected to the community. Uh, but it was just, it was one of those things like where people go like, oh, you're doing this because you have to. But don't you think people think that? Yeah. I know there are people that think that. There's like, oh, he if he if he drinks now in public, then it's going to blow up in his face. But and it will. It would even if you didn't have a show. But it's not because it's going to blow up with public. It's going to blow up because I'm an alcoholic. Right. And that I can't control it. That's what's going to blow up. I remember four years ago, right when I got out of rehab, I was asked to do this uh, speech up in Ogden and, and talk to this crowd. It was for National Suicide Prevention Day. And so mm-hmm. I was I was doing a presentation because their tie-in was is addiction and suicide a lot of times go hand in hand. Sure. Uh, for some, that is their solution to beating their addiction, I, and it's just it's sadly just a, that can be the case. The yeah. reality. And uh, I go up there and I talk about it. Now, in my active addiction, there were times, and I've talked about it on this podcast, where I would be driving in my car screaming at the top of my lungs, "I hate my life." I want this to end. So you felt that escapism. And that's why I, towards the end, was drinking so much because it gave me the escape that I sought. Mm -hmm. It it really did. 
temporary as it may be. As as it may be, and 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 I'm not a suicide guy. It's just I'm probably I, I'm, I I'm a coward. Say, no, no. I, and, I mean, and, I, I hear that, and if that keeps people from suicide, then be a coward. But I will say this: if a guy is optimistic as you, we've I've psychoanalyzed your personality before. It's pretty simple. You're an optimist, yeah, right, and uh, and a people person, and all that good stuff. If a guy with your personality can feel suicidal, like they want to escape their life because of their addiction, any of us that could happen to any of us. So that so I mean, I would scream at that, and so and I was telling the crowd this, and I was talking about my addiction and being at the lowest I've ever been, the rock bottom, as it will, and and, and finding that drive to come back, to find that fight, the hope, the will that life can get better, mm -hmm. and that's the journey I've been on the past four years. So I do the speech, and I talk to a lot of people, and it was the first time I spoke in public about my addiction and everything I've gone through. And then I get this email alert, hey, somebody is talking about you on their podcast. Okay. And so I'm not going to name names or whatever, <laughs> but it's, it's, so I go to their podcast, Yeah, and they were in the crowd, and uh, they do what I do. They um, were podcasting as you were talking? No, they were there oh. to support it, oh, but okay. they heard me, okay. and I went, and I, I'm, I'm vain, and I wanted to hear what they were saying about me. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to their podcast, uh -huh. and the host goes, I can't believe... He did this. I can't believe he said this in public. This is career suicide. He will never work in this town again. Because of admitting to your- My problems, your... my addictions, and just opening huh. up. Okay. And I thought, well, that's weird. Yeah. Because my problems and my addiction is what's making me not work in this town now. Right. You know what I mean? Hey, I've pretty much lost your good jobs you know, because of that. That's what it yeah. is. And so I remember when I decided to do this podcast and, and when I decided to be real, and, and this podcast was really what got me back into the field. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to let people go along this ride with me, the ups and the downs, the goods and the bad, and, and just let them go along with me and, and, and let them have a, a, a third-person view of, of what it's like to fight and battle addiction. And hopefully, on the other end, there, there's going to be some good that comes out of it. Yeah. And it was interesting that he was like, I can't believe that he would talk about this because he'll never work in this town again. Well, your mugshot was kind of everywhere, so it's not like you were hiding it. But I think that's and, – and I think – But that's, a, that's an old-fashioned – I think that's an old-fashioned – I hope it's old-fashioned uh, attitude now about addiction. Well, addiction. That we have to hide it in order to kind of move forward in life. Well, you know, and, and they say in the addiction world is that your secrets keep you sick. Right. And when you were diagnosed or admitted you were addicted to alcohol, opioids, whatever it may be, pornography, you didn't let anybody else know. So that's secrets with you. Yes. Yeah. And I remember, and I think it was Tony. She was a guest or it was Lizzie Dankers and they've been guests on the podcast before. And they said, if you're going to know me, the real me, mm -hmm. you're going to know all of me. Sure. And this is a part of my story. Well, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Let's play the other side of it. Did you ever have moments in your early recovery time where you were kind of tempted not to talk about it, to, to keep it to yourself, like from feelings of embarrassment or uh, shame? So- Early on, in, well, not early on in my career, later on in my career before I got let go, I mean, there was incidences where I would get in trouble on TV and radio, and we just kind of swept it under the rug. We didn't talk about it. Right. Uh, you know, uh, where... I remember back when we used to do TV together. Yeah, and you know what that. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Where it would be like... And, and now it's, it, it's crazy because I sit here and I remember conversations I had at the last station before it came to an end where people would walk up to me and they'd be like, hey, you doing Okay. And I'd be like, yeah, 
yeah, I'm great. I'm yeah. Casey. Yeah, of course I'm okay. And they go, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. 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 And now with a sober mind looking back, they were checking in, trying to figure out how Say, they could help me. Right. But I was so oblivious to my addiction and what was going on that I didn't, didn't even see them for what it was. Well, you and didn't it, think anybody knew. I didn't think anybody knew. Yeah. And I'm here, I'm drinking tequila in the car in the parking lot. Right. <laughs> you know, but a piece of gum's going to handle that. Sure. What a moron. Some really good gum. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I had two pieces. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you probably needed it. But I, I, I guess what I want to say is that um, the reason I do this podcast, and, and I get it all the time, people go, it's so amazing that you do this. It helps so many other people. And I've said it before, but if we've got new listeners, you will never understand how much I get from doing this podcast for me, my family, and my recovery. It helps me more than you will ever, ever know. And it keeps me grounded. It keeps me rooted. And it keeps me in touch with that side of my life. Doing this allows me to do all the other stuff. And I would say what you're doing on TV now, kind of working your way back into TV, if I can say this, uh, maybe other people will disagree. I think you're more fun to watch now than back. I know you used to have a big show and you'd go all over the state and that was a lot of fun to watch. But I think you're a more authentic person now just because you, you are choosing to be completely honest about yourself. And I'll tell you right now, I am having more fun than I've ever had because I never thought I'd get this opportunity again. And the fact that I get to do it, it's just it, – it's crazy. I wake up in the morning. I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I wake up and I'm like – Cool. Let's go. I know because you showed up at my house at five in the morning and you had a lot of energy. I'm like, let's like, go. <laughs> let's do this. Right. So, I, so I'm very thankful for everything that uh, the show, you, and uh, everybody's given me. And and I and I hope that this is proof that recovery is possible. And the things that you know you think you'll never get back, you can, and then some. And recovery is not just sobriety, right? Recovery is a better life, a way better life. I'm going to speak up for T Bone since he and I are both your friends. Yeah. I think T Bone knows that you're doing better. Oh no, he he yeah. does. Yeah, no, yeah. no, he does. Yeah. And I love T Bone with all my heart. I love T Bone just because his name's T Bone. T Bone's never cool. met the guy. T Bone's cool. Yeah. D Dog Drunko. You know my nickname was Fun Pig. <laughs> well, Fun Pig was one of your nicknames. I, I prefer C Money. C Money Helmet. Yeah. I've had a ton, bro. <laughs> They're not good. Hey, we've got a great show for you today. His name is Bryce, and Bryce works up at. Uh, Huntsman, Huntsman Mental-, Mental Health Institute, formerly uni. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Yeah. And uh, what do you do there? So I'm a therapist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm also the program specialist for the recovery services uh, department of the hospital. And so lots of therapy, lots of uh, – we have an IOP program there. We have medication management there. Um, and so I help kind of supervise the clinical end of things. And so basically you're a fountain and of information. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to have him here. I, I hijacked him. We were in an online meeting together and then I hit him up afterwards <laughs> to come in because I want everybody to hear about all the cool stuff that, uh, Bryce is doing and everybody up at Huntsman, uh, that they're doing for our community. Yeah. When somebody realizes they need help, they don't know where to turn. Well, Bryce is going to be a great guy to turn to. You're listening to project recovery right here. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind 
only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He is a clinical psychologist, but he's not the only smart guy in the room. Definitely not. We got Bryce Herrera. How are you? I'm doing good. So you're a licensed counselor? Yeah, licensed clinical social worker. Okay, what does that mean? Let's just let's just let's dissect your degree and talk sure. about all the things that you did to get to where you are. Sure. So the first one is uh, I think I had to start with getting a, a undergrad degree, a bachelor's degree, and I got my bachelor's degrees in psychology and sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized there's probably not much I was going to do with just those two degrees. In, I know in that itself. feeling. <laughs> um, and so I thought, what do I want to do? And, and social, I, I remember taking some so, uh, sociology classes, but social work classes and really liked them. I'm someone who's always been interested in like social justice and things like that. Growing up in Utah, being um, I'm half Mexican I'm, and, and my mom's white. And so... You know, there's a predominant race and, and culture here to Utah, and so I was always interested in the other side of that. And so I thought social work seems to fit, and I didn't necessarily want to be a, a therapist, but I thought I'll get my master's degree and kind of do something in social justice. And so I applied to the University of Utah in the social work program and got in, and um, it's a two-year program. Um, and you learn a little bit of everything. You don't just learn therapy. We learn a lot of other things, like I said, social justice, uh, systems, uh, we call it micro, macro, meso level kind of stuff. Um, and then I just sort of, uh, you know, like I said, I was really interested in the criminal justice side of things and, and, you know, drug policies and the criminal justice system sort of fit into that. And I got my first, uh, it was my first year internship or practicum at a substance use facility, a county run, uh, substance use facility, first step house. I don't know if it, you know, yeah, maybe no, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. they still do very good work. Um, and I just loved it. And, and for whatever reason. What did reason, you love about it? Um, I was telling my wife actually about this the other day. It's just people in recovery are so honest and so authentic. And not that other people aren't, um, but they're so honest about their struggles. They're so honest about their, their recovery. Sometimes I call it radical honesty. Oh, like yeah. They're, they're, they are yeah. a little more honest than the rest yeah. of us. And they kind of force you to be. Yeah. Pretty honest and pretty transparent, and you know, like you were joking off air, you know, cursing and things. Like, yeah, I don't have to mind, you know, when I'm working in, with, in groups and stuff, I don't have to wash my mouth, my language sometimes. And, yeah, but they're just so like, you know, kind of a cheesy word, but courageous, really, to to go through that. And I don't want to speak for all addicts, uh, but I think some of that is is because um, what do we have to lose? You know, I mean, if, if, if we're at that point now where, you know, we've hit our rock bottom and we're ready to fight for our lives and get that back, why are we going to hide secrets now? Because what do we have to lose? Yeah, and and, and that's, that's the kind point. of thing about addiction is that you go, we've had so many people sit where you're sitting right now, Bryce, where they would go, if the therapist would have told me to put my head in the toilet, I'd have said how many times? Because yeah, I was just ready, ready to, to go. do whatever yeah. it takes to yeah. get away from the situation I'm in. And so yeah. sometimes it's that radical honesty and uh, just going, okay, here it is, man. And I'll tell you this, and you guys are both therapists, so you know how freeing it is to finally put all your cards on the table. Yeah. Most of us have been traveling our whole lives 
keeping a couple cards in our back pocket, some of our deepest, darkest things that we don't want to share because we think it makes us a bad human or that nobody else could ever do that. And if you knew this about me, you would never trust yourself around me or just whatever it may be. There's just all those what ifs. And then you tell a room of people that and they're all like, oh, yeah, we did that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there is something freeing about that. Yeah, yeah. So you started to work at First Step. Yeah, so that was my first, you know, you do an internship your first year of grad school and then your second year. Um, so I did that first year internship and then I did, um, I started taking a lot more substance use classes back then. In the social work program, you can kind of have a concentration, you know, uh, mental health, uh, substance use, medical social work, different concentrations. I did mine in, in like a in mental health. So it was a broad sort of overview of mental health treatment. But, but I, mental health yeah. and addiction uh, pretty much go oh, hand yeah. in hand. 100%. They go pretty hand in hand and even if you're someone who doesn't probably work with substance use, it's going to show up in some form or fashion. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, mental health fit really, you know, right in there. Um, now, you talked a little bit about your family. Was there yeah. anything in your family history that made substance abuse or addiction uh, kind of a uh, a focal point? I mean, is, is it coming um, from, a, or is it just kind of like I like the work? Not, not necessarily. I think. Um, I have a. I think there's addiction on both sides of my family. A little bit of drinking. I'm talking like great great grandparents and stuff like that. I come. I, I come from a, a LDS family, and mm-hmm. I, I'm no longer. I'm no longer. I would consider myself active or whatever. But um, there's a little bit of addiction on both sides. But it was more of just a, a just an interest more than anything. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so you you kind of do mental health as your focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your second year, are you still at First Step? No. So I did, uh, and this was a really awesome experience I did with the VA. So I was working with uh, homeless veterans, actually. So again, I went into that thinking, okay, like I'll be doing a lot of case management and social work. And again, addiction was right at the forefront of that. Um, I don't have any statistics on this, but we would, you know, do a lot of outreach in the streets and, you know, the road home and we'd hang out, you know, in, in those circles and, Everywhere you go, addiction was there and, you know, and, and there's a lot of other things that, you know, you know, PTSD and trauma that sort of put someone in those situations where they were pretty heavily addicted. Um, but again, addiction was at the forefront there. And so um, it was like I, I couldn't escape it, I guess, is what I meant. What I mean by that is everything I went to was just addiction was showing up one way or another. And again, I just kept having this like really big interest and, and really loved the work. And it was really fulfilling that that's another thing when you asked me, like, you know, what draw me, drew me to it. It was, it was so fulfilling for whatever reason. No, I understand that a hundred percent just from doing this little podcast once a week. And I think, you know, not to speak for every professional yeah. in mental health, but I think when you go through your training, you kind of feel drawn to certain mm-hmm. populations, certain issues or disorders or problems. And, and you kind of feel that pull that way. And it sounds like for you, you know, this uh, working with people who had substance use issues yeah. kept being sort of that magnet that pulled you into that uh, field more, yeah. more than a lot of the people we've had on the show, of course, have a history of addiction themselves or in their family. Yeah. Um and I think it's interesting, I hope it's interesting for listeners, because people will ask me, like, well, why did you become a psychologist? I think they're implying, like, because you're kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Like, well, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. But I think it's just sometimes you have an interest, and professionally you feel like I can make a difference in this particular area. And so um, it's great to have people in uh, substance abuse that have, that was just what brought them to it. So, Bryce, in the field that you were going into, there was all kinds of different focuses. But you said one thing was constant, and that was addiction was kind of 
Yeah. Right along. Yeah. Why do you think addiction is what it is? I mean, I know that's a loaded question, but yeah. But what do you um, think it is? I I kind of try to normalize it in a sense because I think it's such a human experience. I, I think, like even when you ask me, it's like, oh, did you have any, you know, personal experience? Like, well, yes, but no. I mean, are we talking about substances? You know, then then maybe not. But like, I think it's a pretty human experience. I think as long as we are humans and we have feelings and we we question, you know, we have existential thoughts and we question all these different things of our lives and we have traumas and I don't know any person who doesn't have trauma, then addiction is going to kind of fall in line with that. We're going to want to feel when we're up, we want to feel down or when we're down, we want to feel up. Or, I know? love what you said. Human is such a, I mean, addiction is such a human experience. Yeah. But for the longest time, addiction has such a negative connotation that when you think of it, you automatically go to this horrible place that nobody wants to talk about it. But yet all of us in some way and same form in our life have been afflicted by addiction. Well, I hope these kinds of conversations, public conversations, are starting to dispel that. Uh, Because, you know, we used to, growing up, if you'd have asked me where would, you know, who's an addict, I probably would have pointed to Pioneer Park and homeless folks and things like that because that's the cliche in our mind. But I totally agree with you, Bryce. Like, um, I am not an addictions counselor. Okay. That's not my specialty, but I work with people who have addictions of various sorts every day. You can't help it because as humans, sometimes we just want to check out from all the stressors of life. And, you know, sometimes, those addictions come pretty heavy handed, like with opiates. And sometimes it's uh, video games and Netflix, you know, yeah. so, porn. I mean, yeah. or porn or there yeah. are lots of things. But that human tendency to want to escape, uh, feel up or down, like you were saying, yeah. it's, it's right there with all of us. So you're working with the veterans mm-hmm. and you're hanging out and you're noticing yeah. addictions riding along with a lot of them. Oh, yeah, totally. Um yeah, like I said, and, you know, with that population, obviously there's a huge um, correlation to trauma or, you know, PTSD, whether that's military trauma or, you know, a lot of those cases, you know, you find you, you get, you know, you get a history from people and it's like, oh, they had trauma going into the military and maybe Sometimes that, yeah. the military was their escape from trauma. Yeah, exactly. Or they had nothing else. You know, I know some of these guys come from, you know, not a lot. And it's like, I don't have any other option but to join the military, join the army, join the Marines. And then, you know, that gets exacerbated and, and again – Substances start to sound pretty good. Yeah. So then you you finish that. Where do you go from there? So my so I got my degree, um, and um, after so for our profession in our licensure, you you get your master's degree. You got to take this test first of all. Take this test, and it stressed me out, but I passed it. And then you have to do so many hours to get your. Uh, there's a couple different licensures, and so I, my first licensure was they just call it a, a certified social worker license. Um, and so I think you need to get like I don't know, it's changed now, but like four thousand hours of experience. So at a college, I'm just looking for a job, kind of. You know, it's hard to get a job, and so my first job though, um, I saw a posting for uh, addiction treatment in the jail. Um, in the Salt Lake County Jail, and it was a program called CATS, and I think it still exists to this day, I want to say. Okay. Um, back in the day, Valley Behavioral Health used to run it. I think Odyssey House has taken over at one point. And Odyssey House is still a great program, yeah, still yeah, yeah. Uh, doing wonderful things. Yeah, and so it's, it was basically like a residential treatment program in the jail, um, which sounds weird, but it was, um, you know, it was. But that's a, their resident. Yeah, I guess that's where they go. Um, that's where they live. And and so it was, like I said, in the jail, in the pod. You know, if you ever been to jail, they call the pod. Um, uh-huh. And um, all these, and it also, something that's kind of weird about this or interesting, I should say, is a lot of those um, 
inmates, patients, clients, whatever you want to call it, they, they, a lot of them didn't have like substance use charges per se, but a lot of them had, you know, theft, um, I don't know, you breaking know, and entering, breaking and entering. Yeah. Not, you know, assault, maybe like different charges. Rarely did I see a lot of people who had like direct substance use charges. However, right. How many of those charges were done to obtain substances or to in the, in the, um, to feed while, the fix or while intoxicated on something, um, and, and it was a it was an intense program. It was a very uh, it was a kind of a what they call it a therapeutic community type of uh, program. So everyone's kind of there to hold each other accountable, um, and so it really kind of got me out of my comfort system because you know you often you know have to kind of confront people <laughs> on their stuff in and, jail and in jail and they you know there's all these rules in jail and you know around. Can do this, can't do that, and so it was interesting because you'd see a lot of the because obviously, and don't get me wrong, there's you can get drugs in jail, but oh, yeah. so it's harder, and so we would see a lot of the underlying behaviors that are very similar to the addictive behaviors, you know, stealing commissary, trading commissary, all those things, and we would treat it, you know, in a therapeutic way of not like you're bad or you're good or whatever, but like, hey, let's talk about that, you know, like. We noticed you stole this common someone's ramen, or we know you stole someone's this and that. And let's talk about how that maybe relates to your your addiction. That you know when you came in here, um, it was it was a really fascinating program. And yeah, let me ask you: Do you were most of the clients, patients, inmates, uh, all one and the same? Were yeah. they forced to do this program, or was it voluntary? It's uh, a good question. It's tricky because uh, it was voluntary, and I believe. <laughs> They would get some time knocked off, off there. Yeah. So there's there. incentive. Yes. Exactly. Positive reinforcement yeah, to yeah, join yeah. the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so, so you get the you yeah, so you'd get like some people who seem to really take it serious and some who maybe not so much. But there but I like the fact that that's at least offered. Oh yeah. In, in, in I the mean, system. Is there a better place to offer something like that? I can't think of a better place because you have a captive oh, yeah. audience yeah. who are likely there in some way due to substance abuse. Like, like there's something yeah. about their life that they could benefit from that counseling, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I tell anybody now, I go, hey, if you can get 45 days in a treatment center without an addiction, take it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful time to really do some self-evaluation, get to know who you are, and <laughs> we, talk to a we, therapist. We've talked about this before. When when I'm president of the United States, no, that would never happen. But like in my perfect uh, America, we would have – in 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 the workplace, we would have requirements like that every year, where people have the ability, have the have the resources to take thirty days of personal time yeah. and have programs available to help us with meditation, uh, health, spirituality, all that kind of stuff. It's it's wonderful. I feel like life is. Uh the rule book to life is like Ikea instructions. Nobody really understands them completely, and we're just doing the best we can. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, ah, because, I mean, nobody really goes And through. the Swedes are in charge. Yes. That's how it is. <laughs> so after you leave the prison, where do you go? Uh, so that's when I, I took uh, the job up at the Hunson, again, formerly uni, but uh, the Hunson Mental Health Institute. Um, again, at the time it was uni, and I, I got... Um, I applied and I think it was just for a social work job and they had said, oh, we have an adult job and we have a, I think they said an adolescent job, but they're both were going to be inpatient. But we also had this job that was going to be um, detox. And so I had that substance use background. And so my boss was like, we're going to throw you in the on the detox unit. And so, I was in the detox unit and almost didn't leave. I'll tell you more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery. 
Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Bryce Herrera. Uh, he's talking in the story just of when he started taking over and working on the detox floor of yeah. what was is uni, but now it's the Huntsman Mental Health HMHI Huntsman Mental yeah. Health Institute. We uh, the Huntsman Foundation donated a large sum of money uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and part of that came with a name change, but also some very exciting things. A lot of influx into new clinical services, and honestly, uh, just so the listeners know, there is a very serious goal to make Huntsman Mental Health Institute. A uh, very top tier mental health research institute in the country, akin to other places like the Mayo Clinic and and places like that. And I think they're off to a great start. I'm proud to be part of it, and so excited that Bryce would come on the show. And we found out that that maybe is a connection the two of you had. Yeah. So you started working there the year I went in for detox. Now, for those of you who don't know detox. Uh, I didn't know what a detox was, and when I knew I needed help, that was where I was. Well, let's hear. Let's hear you say what you think a <laughs> detox is, and then let's hear the expert tell us what a detox is. So I, I had no idea what a detox facility was. I didn't know what its purpose was. But uh, after I got the DUI and I realized uh, I needed some help and I didn't know where to turn, I called a friend, and she said, "Hey, call Uni." And I called Uni uh, and said, "Hey, I'm an alcoholic." I've been drinking and I need You just bailed yourself out of jail. Just bailed myself out of jail and I knew I needed to do something different. And so I called them. Uh, we talked and they said, show up at seven. I showed up at four because I didn't want to be alone. It was the first time I remember sitting in the room and my mom was there. I'm 44 at the time. Um, and they're asking me about everything that I've ever done. And the lady leans over to me and she goes, this is probably a good time to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> and I go, why? And they go, because we're dealing with your life. Detoxing from alcohol is one of the most dangerous substances to come off of. It really is. So you need to be honest with us. Uh, even if you don't think it matters, it matters. So tell us. And so I remember sitting there and talking about all the things I've done and how much I drink. And I remember looking at this lady telling her this and out of the corner of the eye looking at my mom. And oh. my mom's face was like, who is this kid? That's 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 hard. Oh yeah, no, that, it was not fun. Hard. Yeah. And I remember my mom just like open mouth gasp, just going, "What?" She had no idea. No idea. Yeah, you know. And so I told her what it was, and I told her everything, and, and she was okay. And uh, she was, "You're sober," and I was like, "Yeah, I'm sober." She was, well, "Most people come in drunk." I go, "I didn't know that was a thing." And she goes, "Oh yeah, it's a thing." He goes, "Did you not see the beer bottles when you walked in? That's people taking their last drink." Yeah, yeah. I was like, "Well, no one told me that." And so, yeah, I'm so. Did you ask for a do-over? No. Okay. Because at this point, I knew what it took to get me there. Yeah. And so, uh, and and that's part of the thing is that if you're ready and somebody's ready, do whatever you can to get them there as fast as you can. And just, you know, I know other facilities try to have a similar program, but up at Huntsman, that's one of the great things is you can sit down with an intake person who's a highly trained professional and they can talk you through and they know how to get the truth out of you. Yeah. So for your own good. Yeah. And so I, so I go in there and I'm detoxing, uh, you know, and we've talked about this before. I got the no slip socks on, uh, they take my belt, uh, you know, they, 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 they start to wean me or taper me off of alcohol with the help of drugs. Mm-hmm. Adivant and I think Librium yeah. are the two that's most commonly used. Yeah. But while I'm in there, my breathing gets so shallow and my heart rate gets so low 
that they have to pick me up and take me down to the ER because they think I'm going to die. And I've never really told this part of the story. Yeah, you had, I, actually, that was news to me. But I that's didn't know the that. truth. Yeah. And so uh, they have to call my parents, say, your son's in the ER. We hope he's going to be okay, but he's got really shallow breathing, and uh, this is not good. It's dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. So I spent, I think it was like six hours. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, a lot was fuzzy back then. Uh, about six hours down in the ER, and then they put me back in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's when my family realized how serious detoxing off of alcohol is i i have people all the time do not eat they'll actually not believe me when i say that they're like oh it's got to be harder you know it's got to be more dangerous coming off these other drugs and i would say actually alcohol uh, has the highest correct me if i'm wrong morbidity rate for people in like detoxing on their own yeah alcohol and and, and benzodiazepines but alcohol probably number one um yeah i mean the risk of seizures i think that's at the top of it um and you know there's I've seen people who go through, you know, DTs, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know. What are DTs? Uh, what are they, how do you say? Delirium De- tremens or, or Yeah, whatever. delirium um, tremens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just an extreme form of of, uh, of withdrawal to where, you know, you start, you, you can hallucinate, you can see things. Your peripheral um, nervous system is yeah. in shock and you're shaking. Yeah. But I think that's where the honesty comes in because we've had so many people on this podcast talk about their alcohol addiction or their pill addiction. And what I tell you and what I do normally don't correlate. Like you always, like for the longest time in my addiction, if somebody would ask me how many beers I had, the standard answer was two. And it it didn't really matter how many, but I'm going to tell you two, because I feel like two is a comfortable number that you can live with. And it just sounds better than saying 18. (laughs) It does a little. Yeah. You you know, but but that's the thing is that so when a husband or a wife is talking about their alcohol addiction and they're telling this story to their wife, they're probably not being 100 percent honest. If they're saying that they're drinking a pint a day, it's probably a little bit more than a pint a day. I think that's always the case. Always. They always downplay it. And it's, just, it's, it's, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's that part of the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they tell that to the spouse and then you're not telling the same to the doctors, and they're like, well, I'm just going to I'm going to just DT at home. I'm just going to detox at home. Oh, and yeah. then you go, whoa, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Well, as you're saying, you know, when they're telling you, you know, you need to be honest, because if you're not honest, this is going to be you're going to be hurting. Yeah. Because if you say, oh, I only drink six, six beers. Well, we base how much Ativan, how much Librium we're going to give you off of this number. Yeah. We're going to find out anyways if you if you underreport because you're going to have more symptoms. Um, there's scales we do. There's some called the Siwa scales and cow scales that we do. You know, you probably remember when you're on there every so often. Last you know how you feeling with this, how you feeling with that. Oh yeah. So we'll know if you're lying about it, but it's not the time to, to lie. Whether you you know your wife's there because you're going to. Physically, it's not going to be great. Or even if you have point. to admit it in front of your mom. Yeah. yeah. But that's my point is that when you're telling something to your spouse and you're making it not seem as bad as it really is, yeah. and then you're going to try to sell them on this notion that you're going to detox yourself yeah. at home, I don't think the loved one knows how dangerous that really is. Well, even and sometimes we'll get we you know we'll, one of my roles I had was getting collateral information from if we're feeling like I don't know sure what's going on here, and so if the patient allowed us to, we'd call their spouse to their person. Like, do you, you know what's kind of going on here? How much do you think they're drinking? But obviously, like, there's you know there's what they see from their loved one and drinking. But how much is that patient hiding a lot of the alcohol well, around I'm, the I'm house? I'm telling you right now uh, from. 
personal experience. Yeah. We're hiding more than you know. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. it's gotten to this point, we're hiding more than you know. I bet it's one-third, two-thirds. A third of what you see and two-thirds behind the door. Yeah. So that number is always, I think, a little shocking for – for some and yeah. some and some family members, I think are aren't they're they're pretty on they 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 get it. Yeah. So I, I've said before, I think the majority of the people who listen to this podcast are loved ones of people in addiction. Yeah, and so they don't know where to turn when they need help, and usually they're the people who pick up the phone first. Yep. And say, hey, I've got somebody in my family that's going through this. What do we need to do? So let's walk the people through that process. What sure. do they do at Hunter yeah. Mental? So, um, yeah, and you're right. It's usually yeah, a lot of times it's a family member or someone. And, and so we have uh, different intake numbers. We, you know, where we're our department, we have a, a, a direct line that people can call and, and again, just say, hey, my spouse, my partner, my my son is 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 uh, he's addicted. He has some sort of substance use problem. And I think the first step is getting an assessment scheduled. Um, I think that's probably the the most important thing when someone's starting out. Now, there's always times when maybe a spouse or a partner's calling and saying, "I have my this loved one, but they don't want to come in either." Yeah, I'm calling for them, but I'm sure they're coming. Those ones are a little bit more difficult cases to to sort of navigate because if you're over 18 and you're an adult, you kind of have to make that call on your own. Yeah, legally. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'll have sometimes people call. Well, can we do an intervention? Can we do this and can we do that? And, and there are people who specialize in that sort of thing. But for our services, again, the, the first step is just getting an assessment. So what I usually will tell loved ones, or even if it's a patient calling, just come in and get the assessment, and we'll go from there. Is you know an assessment I mean? free? Um, we actually, for our IOP program, we do uh, uh, our assessments actually are free. Um, but and and actually in the CAC, that's the intake center at the uh, Huntsman. That's free as well. Um, now, obviously, depending on what happens after that, then that's when insurance and, and payment and things. But that's happen. great yeah. for people to know because I think yeah. a lot of people don't. You know, I will get questions through Facebook and things yeah. about like, oh, we don't have insurance. There's no place we can go. Yeah. And so what you're saying is at least start with an assessment. You yeah. can get a free assessment and then you'll have some options. You'll know exactly. where you can go and what you can do, how severe your issue is, how, maybe yeah. how long it would take. And I think just having those questions stops a lot of people from seeking treatment. And so I agree with you mm-hmm. 100%. People yeah. can call in. Do you know the the intake number there, d- the direct um, number? Our, our number, oh man, I had it off the top of my head. It was uh, 585-1575. Um, that, and that's our number to the recovery services. And that's a good place to start. Cause even to, you can have a, even over the phone, sometimes you can have a conversation I mean, sometimes even like, uh, um, you may call and, and again, not know where to go. And even just through a phone screen, someone can say, okay, I think you're going to probably need detox yeah. before we, cause some people don't, again, don't know, do I need detox? And I just start doing some therapy or something. And it's like, they even there. And sometimes our people who, who answer the phones, they'll, they'll contact me and be like, Hey, this is the situation, Bryce. Do you think I should direct them over to detox or can we get them into outpatient or, in, you know? And so I think even sometimes just the phone screen in itself is a pretty important call. But the thing I like about what you guys do at Huntsman is that um, you're a great source to figure out where the next step is. For those yeah. who don't know, I spent seven days in uni in the detox facility, and that's where I was introduced to Pinnacle Recovery because that was someone's job to stop by and check on the patients of what was uni and say, hey, we offer this help. And it would Pinnacle wasn't the only one. There was another one uh, that my mom went and looked at, and Pinnacle just seemed to be a better fit for me, yeah. and that's why I chose it. But, I mean, as a marketer for a recovery center, 
they stop by Huntsman, or they should at least, yeah. a couple times a week and say, who do you have? How can we help? And that should be Odyssey. That should be all, all the different recovery centers in the state, for the yeah. most part, should stop by and be checking out what they have and how they can help them. Yeah, I have. A, I, I still have a, a really good Rolodex of, of, of folks that I've known. You know, I know Pinnacle. I know all, you know, some of these people because, yeah, they, you know, that was my primary role as a social worker was patients would come in and I'd get assigned a caseload of, I don't know, you know, five, six, seven patients. And some of them came into detox already. So like I said, I brought the intervention thing. We get a lot of people who would come in already with an intervention. They have the treatment center already picked out. They just need to come in and detox. And in that case, you know, in those cases, we we're just there and, you know, the treatment center would come up and visit them while they're there. And then they, when they're done, they transfer them to the facility. But a lot of folks, I say more times than not, didn't have – it was just like I'm here to detox and I don't know what else I'm supposed to do after this. Yeah. And so that was my job to sort of be like, well, there's these treatment options. There's these, you know, levels of care. There's these uh, – um, and, you know, and a lot of times you're doing that off of insurance and their resources and – but then there's always, you know, well, what do they want to do? Because I may say, hey, thinking you'd be in rehab, thinking you'd be in residential. And they're like, oh, I'm just going to go back home. <laughs> I got to get back to work or I got to, you know, but thanks, but no thanks. And, and you know, and you would try to work with them be like, you know, you can't force someone, as I said. But, you know, so that was some of the difficult par- parts of the job sometimes is like, what do we do after this? So if those are some of the difficult parts of the job, what are some of the best parts about the job? Um, you know, I, I it's interesting because um, – how do you say like with with those detox patients it was pretty remarkable like like you said you were there 7 days like the just the change you would see just from day 1 to day 7 was like night and day so then if you think about like okay some of these patients i would see later you know and, and work with them and later and just in a month you would see a huge difference and in 2 months you'd see a huge difference in 3 months it's like you look different you put on weight now you're glowing, you seem happy, but like stuff I think like, and this isn't, I'm just kind of comparing different groups I've worked with, but like someone who has like a clinical depression, it takes a little bit of a, sometimes it takes a little while, but I think with substance use, you see quite a change. Um, like I said, pretty rapidly, I don't want to say rapidly, but like, you know, just in a month, two months, three months. Then again, I work with people in a year and it's just so remarkable to see how people just lives just change like I'll tell so, you, yeah. I'm a testament to recovery and what a wonderful thing it can do. I remember being in recovery and I was in the house for three weeks and I remember walking down the stairs and this lady goes, there you are. And I was like, I've been here for three weeks. And she goes, no, there's the light in your eye that I remember oh, yeah. seeing on TV. Yeah. There's the face. Right. There's, you're back. You're back. Yeah. Because it was just so empty and so void. And, yeah. just, and she goes, there you are. Yeah. So... <laughs> What are you seeing now? Uh, what I mean, is it like it seems to me uh, that the younger generation, um, not a generation of drinkers, not a lot of drinkers. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't you know, anecdotally, I don't know the research on this, but like, yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, I don't know. I'm 36 and I remember drinking was pretty, you know. It was a thing in high school. Well, it was yeah. pretty much the only game in town, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there was marijuana, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. You didn't have it in gummy form. You didn't have it in soda pop form. You didn't have it in a vape. Yeah. I mean, I mean, now you anything you want with weed in it, you can get. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I run a – I facilitate a, a, a teen, a teen uh, adolescent substance use group, and so I'll hear what, you know, think, things they're doing. And, um, you know, big – you know, marijuana is really big. Um, 
kind of the psychedelic, you know, the rise in psychedelics and, and abuse of psychedelics. Are we talking mushrooms and acid? Mushrooms, acid. Um, Ketamine's a big one. Ketamine's a big one. Um, Which is weird because I see driving down I-15 here in Utah, a ketamine treatment is actually yeah. a, a, a process. We've had somebody on and the podcast. We, we have a ketamine yeah. treatment clinic at, at yeah. Huntsman. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A very and a, and a good one. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, the way I put it is, it almost seems like for a long time there was like the we would you were using to numb or to to forget or to you know not think. And now there's like these substances where it's almost like people want to think and they want to broaden get out the horizon. Of, broaden the horizon. And it's yeah, I'm saying this in quotations. Therapeutic. And it's funny. I'll say, oh yeah, I know who, who prescribed that for you. Oh no, I just. Did it myself. So, yeah. so this week, <laughs> yeah. and this is not uncommon for my weeks, I work a lot with uh, adolescents, and I had an a older teen say to me, um, uh, do you think that ketamine would help with my depression? And I said, well, you know, let's have your psychiatrist maybe do more of a medical workup on you and all that, but you're kind of young to maybe look at that. But yeah. we, we could talk about, you know, check with your doc. And then there was a long pause, and he said, well... I know this guy, and he can dose me with- That guy never is up to yeah, good. No, no, that guy, <laughs> no guy, that guy is never yeah. up to anything good. He's yeah. like, and he can dose people with uh, mushrooms, and it, it's just a, it, a microdose. And I said, I'll stop you right there. <laughs> like, like, you don't, that's not, a, that's not an avenue to explore. But I bring it up only for the point to kind of emphasize what Bryce mm-hmm. is saying, is that I think that's a very strong interest for young people these days. Yeah. And they- they don't sometimes see the benefit of going through a medical system where if you are getting a ketamine treatment, uh, that's different than just buying something off the street and some guy who's dosing you. Um, on the street, we call it Special K. Uh, in the hospital, it's it's a drug that's used appropriately and can be helpful, but you should have a full medical workup yeah. about it. But I agree, instead of just wanting to party or numb out, a lot of adolescents are wanting to sort of expand their mind. Yeah. And I, I think they're- It's just I different think, advertising. It's the same thing. Well, I think yeah, they're yeah, being yeah. sold-, sold a, It's yeah. advertising. I mean, that's all it is. It's, it's, they're being sold this idea. Yeah. That this is beneficial and this is going to make you see, but that's the same thing they did in the But they're the just going to get stoned. Yes. That's yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. And they're going to create bad habits and it's yeah. going to become a crutch and who knows what's happening. I mean, I get Could it. you comment, Bryce, a little bit on the adolescent brain? Because you said you run this mm-hmm. adolescent group. How is it different or what are your concerns for a teenager or somebody under, say, age 24? We know that kind of full brain development happens around t- 24. Yeah. Somebody at that age experimenting with these things versus like if somebody is an o- a, a older adult. Yeah, I would say in trying to keep it simple and not use like super, you know, technical terms, I just think that part of their brain, and, you know, like you said, their brain is informed until later. That part of their brain, I think, you know, you think of like logic and rationale. And, so it's the executive function, so frontal yeah, lobes, and it's yeah, the yeah. most human part of our brain kind of solidifies last. Yeah, like right? that that sort of space in between a thought and behavior. <laughs> Right is you know like I said we 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 need that filter to be like you know I want to go get high and it's like well let's think about that for a second you <laughs> know like they I got stuff to do. to do yeah that part of the brain isn't I've got algebra quite, next period yeah. I probably should yeah, do yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I got whatever yeah you know and so that part I don't think the brain's really quite formed yet and so you know there are there is research on you know the if you start using before certain ages you know I think like fifteen obviously you're so much more likely to become addicted but I think it's because of that that you know damage or effect that can have on your brain create addiction wiring exactly for lack of a better term yeah yeah 
So now you're in charge of a lot of stuff. What, what's your yeah. title? Tell us your title there. Yeah, so uh, I guess the official title is a psychiatric program specialist for, the, like I said, the recovery uh, services department. So let's talk about some of the recovery services that you have yeah. up there. What, what, what are some of them? I know you got an IOP, and I remember yeah. the first twelve-step uh, meeting. What's I went IOP to, for the intensive listener? outpatient? Nice. Yeah, yeah. But my first twelve-step meeting was in the halls of uh, Huntsman. Yeah, we used to have a big. Uh, I think it was a Sunday night. There was an AA meeting. There was a CA meeting that was really well attended on Sunday nights. One yeah. of those, like huge. I mean, doing the in the cafeteria. Was that oh, the yeah. one? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I was there. That's the first um, person, first place yeah. I stood up and said, yeah. "I'm Casey Scott, and I'm an alcoholic." Oh yeah, huge group. Um, um, but beyond that, like I said, I mentioned the medical detox thing, and then um, we kind of separate our department into what we call our recovery clinic, which is the um, – I have a caseload of, of patients that I see for individual therapy. We do some couples therapy. Um, and then, we, like I said, we also have the medication management piece. So we have addiction psychiatry. That's a huge uh, piece, and I think – you know, Tell me about of, addiction psychiatry. Yeah, so it, it's, a I think, a piece that – I don't know. I, I guess it's a probably fairly newer term considered um, – but it's basically how do you how would you say it? It's um, everyone knows. I, I I would imagine most people know what psychiatry is in general. You go to a doctor, you have depression, you have anxiety. They prescribe you an antidepressant or something to help you know curb some of that, that those symptoms. And so for addiction psychiatry, I think the one caveat to that is there's a number of medications that can help people who have alcohol dependency, uh, opiate dependency. We we call it medication assisted treatment. We call it MAT. Um, and so, so we, that's like your Suboxones and yeah, your Vivitrols, Vivitrol, Naltrexone. Um, but sometimes too, it's it's you know you need a. The way I think of it, addiction psychiatry is they're all specialized in addiction. So we may get someone, for example, who comes in um, for something, and and they're like, okay, well, I I you know my my addiction is let's say opiates or something, but I'm having this anxiety, doc. So can I get some Xanax though? And mm-hmm. and again, so an addiction psychiatrist has that knowledge to say. Well, Zan, you know, I know your history. You already have this problem with opiates. Um, you know, maybe a benzodiazepine is not the best. Maybe we shouldn't be throwing gasoline on this yeah. fire. Yeah, but I think someone who maybe doesn't have as much of that background in addiction will say, "Oh, well, that's not your drug DOC. of choice." And so, well, yeah, let's throw a little Xanax, you know. And I think the, the the medical treatment when you have what we call comorbid or co-occurring disorders, so a person with a typical mental health issue like major depression, yeah. uh, anxiety, PTSD, like you mentioned, and then they also have an addiction, it gets tricky. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's so funny to me is like in gen- in medicine in general, we think in terms of specialists. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, I, you know, I broke my leg. I'm going to go to the orthopedist or ENT if I have breathing problems, that sort of stuff. But when, it comes, to, if yeah, you're when it comes to mental health, they just kind of lump us all in there together and they don't realize there are important specialties within mental health. And uh, I'm in the Department of Psychiatry. That's my fa- faculty position. And one of the things that's great about Huntsman Mental Health is we have the addiction psychiatrist and we have one of the top addiction psychiatry training programs in the country. So you're going to come in there and get some really specialized care. And like I'm sure you see as a therapist, Bryce, people who have specialized care and they're not talking their general practice doc into giving them benzos when they're also addicted to opiates, like they're going to have a much better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, like Matt said too, I mean, if you're coming in and you're, we're just treating bipolar, that's okay. But if we're treating bipolar and 
an opiate thing or an alcohol thing, then it's it gets tricky. a little trickier. And so you and so need someone. You have that, a treatment team. Yeah. And so you have you have the people that specialize yeah. in different things. Bryce is going to specialize in the therapeutic interventions, and the psychiatrists are going to specialize in the medical yeah. interventions. Do you guys still have the bridge program? Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, we still have the bridge program. It's still going strong. Very For those who don't busy. know, yeah. tell me about the bridge program. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember when it came out. I think it's been a few years now. But basically, it's um, we got some uh, funding from the state and, and, you know, and a good amount of funding. So basically, folks who um, have a opiate dependency, they can come into the emergency room up there at the hospital. No insurance, no nothing. They can just present there. And get started on buprenorphine or, or suboxone. Um, and the first, I want to say it's the first 30 days or so is, is basically free, you, get, you know, and, and while they get enrolled in the bridge program, we also help them get on Medicaid or, you know, find funding. So by the time that 30 days runs up, they got Medicaid and they have their, their, their uh, help. Bu- their suboxone. And that's an amazing program because for so many, that's a reason not to get sober. I don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. I don't have a place to live. I don't have anything. So what makes you think that I'm going to be able to find help? Well, there is help available and it's yeah. in the form of the bridge program. Yeah. No, it's, it's like I said, I, and part of the reason I went, I went into this field is I, I think, in a, and I guess I'll speak in a different way is like, if we're really going to tackle the, the addiction problem in, in the state, in the country, we have to start with the underserved populations, I think. 100%. Absolutely. And we've got to deal with mental health as well. And Absolutely. they usually go hand in hand. And that's why you guys are doing wonderful things up there. Yeah. So, Bryce, thank you very much for stopping by and, and sharing your knowledge. I think this has been a very informative podcast, a lot of information. Uh, do you remember that number off the top of your head one more time? Uh, what, did, what did I say? Uh, 581 Sounds good to me. If not, okay. we'll figure it out and we'll put it in the notes. And the, and the the twenty four hour crisis line, which can connect you pretty much anywhere, would yeah. be eight zero one five eight seven three thousand. I think it's five eight seven one five seven five. Yeah, there's a lot of numbers. Yeah, no, I like no, it. Yeah, we like them. We like we, Luckily, we've got a producer who's wicked smart. And a lot will, of 5 8 numbers. He will fix yeah. this. Josh is going to work it out yes, for us. Yes, he's amazing. Yeah. But thank you for stopping by and listening to this. This is Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. See money. Got you, buddy. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.